that is not dead ritual for these words of this Torah and of this gospel are the words of life and the words of truth and the words of our God and of his Christ. And we do well to heed them and to follow them and to do as the scripture just said, come. Uh, That last verse, I think, is basically the Bible's way of saying, y'all come. (laughs) So, we are um, beginning a new series. Uh, Last year, I was asked several times to do a series on subjects related to the end of time. Judgment, the intermediate state of the dead, and subjects that are generally called in theology, eschatology, uh, the doctrine of last things. On Yom Kippur, at our reading of Jonah in the chapel, uh, we had our discussion, and during that time I said, I think maybe I need to explain some of these things in more detail, and there was quite a bit of consensus then. Then as Braden got uh, more ill and passed away, And we went through the process of the the funeral and this morning framework. I've had additional questions from the congregation, both adults and children, uh, about these things. It makes me think that it is time for us to actually do this series. I'm calling the series The Last Days and the World to Come to try to give a big uh, uh, overview. And today's message is really the series introduction And I'm calling that, uh, what are we waiting for? Um, Two ways to say what are we waiting for. Uh, One way is to uh, question content and events. So what exactly is it that we're waiting for, right? Uh, And in that question, it's important because that's the subject that I intend to cover the most in the context of this series as we talk about it. I'm going to at least introduce you to the subjects uh, today. I want to talk about them in significant detail, but there's no way I can do an exhaustive series. It would take so long, and by the time we got to the end, you wouldn't remember the beginning. On the other hand, I don't want to do a quick survey, because I've done enough of that that you should have that kind of basic outline. So I want to do something that's a little more comprehensive. And I'm hoping that you will do some reading about this. If you have the book that we have recommended on theology, N's book, the Moody Handbook of Theology, you can actually read the section on eschatology there and and see a lot of what we're doing. And then, of course, the other theological systems for addressing this are there. Um, I would stay away from... uh, uh, the Left Behind series and any of those kinds of books, they are not, they're not theologically sound and they are more a popular approach to this. I want to I stay in a, in a biblical framework of, of this. Uh, the second way of thinking about the question, what are we waiting for, is the way kids say it. What are we waiting for? Let's go, right? The, that question is not about... What are we waiting for? It's why are we waiting, (laughs) really? And that is also a significant issue because it's the idea of timing uh, and of sequence. 
uh, what, why are the promises of God taking so long and when will this be completed? Or as kids often say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, kind of the kids version of Bueller, 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 you know, nobody's listening, you know, kind of thing. Um, so I intend to address this as well. I'm going to talk about that a little bit today as well. Uh, because the scriptures actually address that. So the purpose of the series is to help us understand what we are waiting for and why we are waiting so long. And the answers, I think, will help us in our Judeo-Christian faith and will assist us in waiting with understanding and patience. That passage that was just read before, which obviously won't be on on the uh, tape of this, uh, that says, let him that is uh, 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 wicked be wicked still. And let him that is filthy be filthy still. And let him that is righteous be righteous still. And let him that is holy be holy still. Is basically God saying, pick a path and walk it. If the Lord is God, serve him and be righteous and holy. And struggle along that path. And if not, and you don't trust what he says, go your own way. Walk in unholiness and walk in selfishness and unrighteousness uh, and get to that end because the last times is about those things. So it's a, a very interesting notion. I, I almost wish we had a street sign out in the lobby area that said holiness and goodness, you know, that road and filthiness and wickedness and that road and you had to keep reminding yourself what road to get on. Uh, this morning uh, uh, on the news a, a guy was being chased by the police. He got on the 405 freeway going the wrong way and he uh, collided with another car. There, is, there are implications to our choices. I saw yesterday on Facebook somebody put on uh, you, you are entitled to make your own decisions, but you're not entitled to avoid the consequences of those decisions. So we're going to look at this in the context uh, of the road that we are pat, uh, traveling. So the first one, what are we waiting for? The content and the events. This series is going to spend a lot of time on those. And um, to at least introduce the subject, I want to talk about what is the traditional subjects that are found in this doctrine of eschatology or the doctrine of last things. Uh, One of those is, there are five, one of those is the creation and its purpose. Or what I like to say, the world that was, the world that is, and the world to come. Uh, Peter is going to talk about that. We've talked about it before, but I'll go into more detail. There was a world before this present one that is the world prior to Noah and a very different context of the way things operated. And then there is this present age, this present world that you and I live in that is uh, ultimately going to be destroyed by fire. And then there is a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem to come. And these, these worlds are not so compartmentalized as to be completely separate. They overlap. There is a transition from the time before Noah to the time after Noah. Uh, There will be a transition from this world to the next world. And Jesus says it will be as the days of Noah. 
And so we want to be careful about over-compartmentalizing, but there is an emphasis different in those worlds and the world to come, and I think that's an important part of this doctrine for us to look at. Secondly, man himself. We were created, as you know, from the dust of the ground. We were created from, we were formed, if you will, from this creation. And God breathed into us the breath of life and we became living souls, nefesh. Uh, The idea is that we are both connected to the eternal spiritual reality and we are connected to the created reality and we are both of those things. But because of sin, there is death. There is both the death of the body with the absence of the spirit, but there is the, the second death the death of ultimate separation from God where body and spirit are destroyed in Gehenna. And so we have to talk about the creation of man, the death of man, and the meaning of the hope of resurrection. Um, And I believe that the Christian church has almost made resurrection... They haven't made Jesus' resurrection insignificant, but they've made our resurrection insignificant. Uh, And that is a violation of what the Scripture says about this doctrine. The third area is judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation, interesting. We love to talk about salvation, particularly our own. But the idea of judgment is not a great... uh, thrilling doctrine. You know, if you, if you say you're going to do a series on judgment, people say, gee, it's a good time to take a vacation. You know, I think I'm out of here. Uh, but there is a lot that the scripture says about that. And judgment begins with the house of God. And so we need to think about that. Uh, and the scripture says, if we judge ourselves, we will not be condemned with the world. That, that's an interesting term. So we need to think about that in terms of the last things and the final judgment uh, as well. And what are the rewards and what are the punishments uh, that will be given? Which leads us to the fourth subject, which is the idea of heaven and hell. We talk about heaven and hell a lot. I think this is one of the things that brings up the questions. Uh, We were talking about uh, whether or not Jonah was in Hades. And then we talked about paradise and we talked about the third heaven and what does that mean and what about the final heaven and what about the new Jerusalem and we, we get and the, the lake of fire. What's the relationship of all these things? And so to some extent we have to ask ourselves, what are these places? What is the intermediate state of the dead? And what will the final state be like in, in that sense? And so the doctrine of heaven and hell is, is an important doctrine. And then, of course, what's very significant in this last days is uh, that our great high priest ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come from there to receive the kingdom, restore the creation, rule over the, the nations with a rod of iron as King of kings and Lord of lords, the second coming of Jesus. What is that all about? What will that look like? What form will that take? What will be the precursors of that? And what will he exactly do? Will there be a kingdom? Will there not be a kingdom? Will he simply come back and take us to heaven, as many people think? Or uh, will people disappear? Will there be a tribulation? Uh, Will I have to go through it? 
you know, we don't really ask, will the church go through the tribulation? We ask, will I go through the tribulation, right? And uh, what does that mean? And, and we get words like pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, past-trib. And we get all-millennial, pre-millennial, uh, post-millennial. What the heck do those words mean, right? Uh, and we have to talk about those things as well. What is the precursor, preconditions for His coming? What is the timing and what is the sequence? Of that, And of course, there are people who are called eschatomaniacs, uh, people who just live, eat, breathe, sleep, and drink the second coming and all of this stuff, and they, are, they, they will drive you crazy. Everything in the newspaper is a prophecy fulfilled, right? And everything is that the Lord is coming back any moment, and I've got it all figured out. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and then there are eschatophobia people, you know. I don't, don't talk about it, you know. I don't want to think about it. Uh, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. And so I don't need to know anything about it. Plus, aren't we disappearing uh, anyway, you know. Then you got the people, well, prepare for post and pray for pre and all that stuff. So I have to, I have to at least go through that as well. And I'll be giving you handouts so that you can, you can follow the various uh, scenarios that are there. Now, this will not surprise most of you, but it may surprise some of you. For the most part, I believe the church has most of this doctrine wrong. Not wrong in the sense of complete error. Wrong in the sense of an incomplete understanding and a confused understanding. In other words... I can't always argue with what somebody says, but what they mean is incorrect. They use the right words in the wrong way and get the emphasis on the wrong syllable and then come to a false conclusion uh, because uh, they think they're following the biblical text. We are so, so led by sermons, books, and songs. So when you grow up singing, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. You get the idea that when we die, we go to heaven to be with Jesus in, in kind of an ultimate state. And so now we're in the streets of gold and we're dancing and singing, uh, you know, and, and whenever someone passes away, they try to comfort you with saying they're hanging out with Jesus and Abraham and they're having a party and all that kind of stuff. None of which is biblical. Um, but we are with the Lord, that is true. But how are we with the Lord, and what are we waiting for in that context has to be addressed, and so I'm going to try to do that. Now, the danger will be, as you know these things, uh, people who start saying the nonsense and the confusion, you're going to want to correct. So let me remind you that often trying to do that is kind of like trying to teach a pig to sing. It doesn't work. And it irritates the pig. Okay? So be careful what you do with this. Uh, I am doing this for your benefit. I'm not doing this so you can become an evangelist of end time things. Right? Now, I said I think they've got it wrong. I believe that for two reasons. So let me tell you what those two reasons are. And then let me tell you what I'm going to add to the series that I think will correct that. First of all, the Christian church historically 
has held to an explicit or a de facto, in other words, a deliberate uh, doctrine or a kind of de facto doctrine of replacement theology with regard to Israel, both the land and the people. Uh, And uh, this has resulted in two major views of eschatology. One is called amillennialism. That is the view that God is not going to create a kingdom on earth because he's done with the Jews and he's done with Jerusalem and he's done with the Holy Land. Those promises are now transferred to the church and to the eternal kingdom that is in heaven, not on earth. And that view has been the dominant view since around the 300s all the way to uh, uh, recent times. And you'll find it in the uh, Orthodox Church and you'll find it in the Roman Church and you'll find it in the Protestant Churches and you'll find it in the Free Churches uh, pretty significantly. The other form of this is uh, dispensationalism. Dispensationalism realize that the Jews aren't going away and particularly they're back in the land so we have to figure out how to put that back into the scheme and so the way we'll do that is we're we're going to disappear they're going to catch hell and then when they've caught hell and and return to the messiah we'll come back uh in the second coming or what's commonly called the the rapture theory okay uh both of those are um uh, uh a problem because they don't see uh, the issue of Israel and the land as being a primary focus of the biblical text, even the New Testament text, even the book of Revelation. Secondly, theologians within the Christian perspectives have overstated the dichotomous relationship between the creator and the creation creating a compartmentalization of the spiritual and the natural world, which skews the biblical understanding. In other words, uh, you will get people who say, well, there's the natural and the spiritual, and those two don't, you know, the temporal and the eternal, the spiritual and the natural, the the domain of God and the domain of man, and they, they treat that as if it's completely separate worlds. The Bible doesn't treat it that way. It doesn't treat it that way in that God created the world and he interacts with the world. Uh, He created us from the world and from a part of him. We will be reunited in that. And the incarnation of Jesus, particularly his God entering into the creation in a very real sense. So when we over-dichotomize spiritual and material, uh, we end up with a problem. So those two things. Replacement of Israel and the land as the focus of the scriptures and this over-emphasis of separating the spiritual from the, the material, I think has caused problems in this doctrine of uh, eschatology. So I'm going to add two subjects to the subjects that we're talking about. I've already mentioned uh, the the basic five creation, the 
man and death, judgment and salvation, heaven and hell, and the return of Christ. I'm going to add two more that I think are significant in this. So this will give you a way to ask questions about it, think about what you already know about these subjects, and to be able to ask questions or text me questions or email me questions so that as I finalize the series, I mean, I already know what I'm going to talk about. I've known this stuff for a long time. I'm not making this up the night before. But what I am doing is organizing it so that it will answer the questions that that you ask rather than the questions that I think you might ask. Two things. First, the covenants of God. Now, in our catechism, we talk about the three major covenants, and I think it's probably time for us to revise that. Uh, I left something out that I thought would be easily picked up in other contexts, but, it, but it's not. And as I'm doing some teaching at CBU now among students, I'm finding that knowledge of the covenants is almost completely gone among Christians. I mean, they can say Old Covenant, New Covenant. They have no idea what they're talking about. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about the Abrahamic Covenant, and we're reading books on Abraham, so that's a perfect timing. The Abrahamic Covenant. Secondly, the Mosaic Covenant. That one's the one that we usually know about. That was made at Sinai with the giving of the Torah, right? So the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. Then the one that we haven't talked that much about, the Davidic Covenant. This calling of a shepherd to become the king of Israel and being given a dynasty and a throne that ultimately in Luke, uh, Mary is told he will sit on the throne of his father David. Now that's critical because the church has him sitting on his father's throne in heaven, but the prophets have him going to sit on the son, on, on David's throne as the son of David. This is why Matthew says the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. The Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant all move towards the new covenant that fulfills all of this stuff. And it is focused on the holy God with the holy land and the holy people. It is focused on... Israel and the promised land, the people of Israel and the promised land. That becomes central. The church has either compartmentalized them through, through dispensationalism or eliminated them through replacement theology. So we have to bring the covenants back into place so that we are conversant with the covenants. Second thing that I want to add is an understanding of the kingdom of God. We throw this word around like we know what we're talking about. It is not... Uh, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So the problem is, we tend to say, okay, his kingdom is in heaven, and this world is this world. When Jesus said that, he was speaking to those who were about to condemn him, and, and they were wanting to know if his kingdom was presently going to be a threat to the present kingdoms. And he said, my kingdom's not of this world. In other words, I'm a king who is presently in exile. But he also, we are told in the book of Revelation, when Jesus gives his message, that the kingdoms of this world will now become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. And Jesus said to his disciples, 
The kingdom of God is in your midst. So it's both not of this world and in our midst and ultimately will permeate the entire creation. We have to understand that kingdom of God uh, in that context or we will create that dichotomy that talks about heaven and talks about earth as if they are not connected. So, by putting the priority of the covenants and Israel is central to God's purpose and His kingdom, which the scriptures actually do, then uh, we will be able to not spiritualize the text and usurp what the text says by pulling all of that into the church and into spiritual context that become largely artificial. We will begin to see that God is ultimately going to glorify himself and manifest himself throughout his entire creation to the nations and to the angels, both heaven and earth. So, I think by adding those things to the other things as we talk about them, you will get the better picture. So, we will not have a full understanding even then because we are not given the whole story. There are parts of this that God hasn't given us. The classic example is found in the book of Revelation where John hears seven thunders. Remember, there's seven bowls and seven incensors, uh, seven churches, uh, seven seals. Not the seals on the, uh, on, the, on the scroll, right? And then he says, he heard the seven thunders speak. And John gets ready to write it down. And God says, the angel says, don't write it. Which means... Anybody who's going to put this all together in perfect thing, in perfect sequence, there are going to be holes in it. Because we're not given the whole thing. We're given enough to know what we're waiting for, but we're not going to be given enough to know when it happens. Which leads to the second part of the question. What are are we waiting for? The timing and sequence. And here I'm going to give you some scripture because uh, I want... I, I want to somewhat put this question to rest in terms of when is it going to happen uh, right away. The problem with timing is problematic with God because God's timing is longer than we think and sooner than we expect. God makes a promise. People die before the promise is made, which means it's going to require resurrection for them to enjoy the promise, right? On the other hand, Jesus said, I come quickly about 2,000 years ago, right? And we're told that it's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to happen so fast that people are not going to be ready for it. So our problem is it's, Longer than we are thinking, longer than our attention span, and it's going to be sooner than we expect, so if you're not paying attention, you won't see it coming. Interesting. Let me give you some passages related to this. One we recently looked at, I just want to do it real quick, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 8 to 10, I pick Thessalonians because this book, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, has a lot of information about the second coming. And so we will be looking at those books 
uh, quite a bit. So you should read both of those uh, and become familiar again with them. But in 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 to 10, it says, uh, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. They t- report what kind of reception we had with you, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So one of the things we're waiting for is the return of the Lord. And that return of the Lord is an important part of what we are to be doing. And that's why the Scripture says for us to uh, stay on the road that we're on. Second passage related to this is Titus chapter 2. We have been through that passage before. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 15 says, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in this present age. See the timing? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify us, Uh, For himself, as a people of his own possession, who are going to be zealous to do good deeds. So, there's that road again, right? We are to wait for the Lord to come and we are to be preparing ourselves for that coming. Not hanging out in this world. Revelation 22. The passage that was read uh, before we started this. The very last chapter of the Bible. So this is reading the end of the book, right? Revelation 22, verse 10 through um, 12. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy still be filthy. The one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy Because I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Now, in Daniel's writings about these things, the messenger says, Daniel, seal up the prophecy. Because you're going to die. And it's not going to happen for a long time. Uh, Many are going to sleep. Then there will be a resurrection. And so, seal it up. But here... The messenger says, don't seal this up. The people who are reading now, from the time of the resurrection of Jesus till his second coming, these people have to be on alert. We're going to see that everything that the Lord has promised about the sequence of the end times can happen in one generation. So every generation has to live as if the Lord could come in their lifetime. Now you've had that turn to you that the Lord could come any second. That's not true. 
But the Lord could bring about all the events within our lifetime. So we are to live with that expectation. And we also have to prepare our children and our grandchildren. Because if it's not in our lifetime, it could be in their lifetime. And we don't want to lose those things. Finally, Matthew 24. With apologies to Carrie. Carrie and I, in in the last church, every time she'd ask me a question about Matthew 24, and I'd give her an answer. There'd be an earthquake. And finally she said, I don't want to ask you any more questions about Matthew 24. So hopefully there won't be an earthquake today. Although in my anthro class I was demonstrating a rain dance uh, for magic, and uh, it rained uh, Friday, so (laughs) maybe I have more power than I... (laughs) That's nonsense. Matthew 24... Verses 29 to 36. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. By the way, that passage quoted in the prophets, quoted in the gospels several times, quoted in the book of Acts, quoted in uh, the epistles and quoted in the book of Revelation is pretty significant. Then shall the sign of the Son of Man appear in the skies. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Remember the appearing of the glory of our God. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, the shofar of God. And they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. The gathering of God's people from everywhere in the earth and everywhere in the heaven. So now he says, Learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now there are people going to tell you that the fig tree is, uh, is Israel. That's not what this is talking about. Jesus is saying, uh, you know, when uh, a fig tree puts forth its leaves, you know what season it is. That's all he's saying. This is why biblical prophecy idiots read way too much into things. And then, you know, the tail wags the dog. So he says, when you see the fig tree put forth its branches, you know summer is near. So too, when you see all these things, what he's just been talking about, Recognize that he is near right at the door. I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. In one generation, all of the signs that Jesus warns in that sermon, and we'll talk about it, will take place. In other words, he has given us enough information to know when it happens, but not to predict it. And that's why those who predict the second coming of the Lord are always wrong. At some point they'll be right simply because of coincidence. But not because of knowledge. Jesus says uh, in these passages, um, verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven So they couldn't have revealed it to uh, Daniel or to John, right? Because the angels don't know. 
Not even the Son knows. Only the Father. Now, that gives you trouble with the Trinity. It shouldn't. We'll talk about that too. Now, not only do the angels and the Son not know, because people say, oh yeah, but in the New Testament we're given more information. I want you to look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Acts chapter 1, by this you should almost have it memorized. I use that verse a lot. So they were asking him, this is after the resurrection, he's teaching them about the kingdom. And they're asking him, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? And Jesus says, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed to his own authority. So who else doesn't know? The apostles. Okay, now let's get this. Jesus doesn't know. The angels don't know. Therefore, the prophets couldn't be told by the angels. And the apostles don't know. So how do these Bible prophecy guys know? They don't know diddly squat, okay? So when they start pulling timing and predictions, it's time to turn off the radio and the TV and do some other form of entertainment, okay? And people who go to these seminars and stuff all over the world, paying big money to figure out when the Lord is coming back, don't have a clue. So let me just let you in on a little secret. I don't know either. Okay? I don't know. But I know I don't know, which gives me an advantage over those who don't know they don't know. Right? So I'm going to help us understand what is revealed, what we do know, without getting bogged down into predictions and those kind of things. Right? So let me leave one last passage. Um, boy, my timing is good. Luke chapter 21. Again, the words of Jesus. Beginning at verse 34 through verse 36. This is a parallel passage to the Matthew 24 passage. He says in verse 34, after he's just talked about the fig tree, he says, Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that the day will not come on you like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. 
the reason we need to know these things is so that we will be holy still. We will be righteous still. We will be prepared for when it happens. We don't panic because God told us this would happen. And we will stay faithful to Him because He was faithful to us. Jesus said, this time is going to get so rough that because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold and brother will betray brother to death. Now, when you're protecting yourself, you will let someone else die. But if you believe in resurrection and the God of Israel and the Israel of God, though he slay me, I will trust him. What can man do unto me? I will not fear the one who can destroy this body. I will fear the one who can destroy body and spirit in Gehenna. See how those words work? So there's a reason for us to know this. This is an important doctrine. But it's not the fun stuff. It's the serious stuff to keep us on the right path so that we keep doing what we're supposed to do and are children of the living God. So I'm hoping this series will be interesting, stimulating, and informative to you uh, and in some sense dial up the fear of the Lord uh, in that context. Let's pray.